You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. I was listening to a message recently by a man named Corey Russell, and one of the things that he shares is it just stuck with me, and you'll probably hear me say it um, in the next coming, the next few weeks, but he said the biggest problem in America is not a political issue or social issues or confusion about identity, all these different things. He said the biggest problem in America is that the church is bored with Jesus. The church is bored with Jesus. So this morning I want to talk to you about the fullness of Jesus. How could we be bored with this one? who's poured out his life for yours, for mine. How could we be bored with this one who the angels can't stop looking at in heaven and falling on their faces over and over and over and over and over? This beautiful scene, and I'll probably talk about it next week, but completely enamored with Jesus. You maybe heard it said, it's easy to fall in love But the challenge is staying in love. It's easy to get married, but staying married can be a challenge. I I tell couples in pre-marriage counseling that I I don't like to say that marriage is work because that makes it sound like this obligatory, like, I guess I got to love my wife today. I, I guess I better put her needs before my own. Obviously, we do things to prefer the other above ourselves when we don't feel like it. That's a beautiful definition of love. But rather, it's not about work, but it's about intention and attention. The things that we prioritize. And so we're going to talk about that in Colossians chapter 2 here. Before we go into God's word, let's pray. Jesus, we come to your scripture this morning not looking for answers, but looking to the answer. Jesus, you are the one in whom all Scripture speaks about. Your word says that in the Gospel of John. So we're not here searching for different things to hold up our arguments, but rather we're we're here. We look to your Scriptures as one of the ways in which we meet with you, Jesus, the person of Jesus. So would you open up the eyes of our understanding Would you illuminate this scripture in our hearts like never before? And as your word says in 1 Corinthians, that it's the Holy Spirit who shows us the deep things of God. So would you, Holy Spirit, come and take us deeper into the heart of Jesus this morning? Reveal to us your ways and your intentions towards us. Reveal to us the fullness of who you are, that you are lacking nothing. You are lacking nothing, Lord. And so we look to you and only you, Jesus. Amen. My prayer has been this morning that your, our eyes would be opened in a greater, to have a greater capacity to understand and see Jesus. We're going to start in verse 6. But before that, Paul prays, is, 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 is praying, is, well, is relaying that he's been praying a certain prayer. He says this in verse 2. He says, my goal... Or I want you to know how hard I have been contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all those 
and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may be full, may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's the Lord's intention. He's not trying to hide or make things difficult or trick you. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He also prays this prayer in Philippians 1, 9. He says, he prays that the love of God would abound in you. That knowledge of who he is would increase and that you would have discernment to know what is right. This was Paul's prayer, meaning this is what the the possibilities that he knew were possible in, in, in the fullness of Jesus. So like I was saying earlier, the Lord isn't standing there waving a finger at us. He's not shaking his head at you. When are you guys going to get it? Get it together. But instead, he's inviting us in. He's saying, we're just not understanding things correctly. We haven't experienced what we can experience with him. We haven't seen it become real in his word to us. So just come. Further up, further in. There's always that invitation to come. That he is sufficient for everything that you need in this life. So in verse 6, he begins like this, and this will be on the screen. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So then, just as you have received Christ, how do we receive Christ? Well, Ephesians 2 says we are saved not by works, lest anyone should boast, but by grace through faith. When Jesus becomes real and we turn our lives to him, we see the working of his hand and we turn to him. So just as you received him as Lord, that word Lord is a word that we gloss over a lot of times. The word Lord means master. It means the one who has decision-making power. And I've noticed in my life, I give him decision-making power over certain things, but not everything. And it reveals my lack of trust in who he is when I don't give him the power to make decisions in my life. When I don't go to him and say, Lord, in this relationship or in this opportunity for a job or a promotion or whatever it is, I want to know what you want for my life, and I will do whatever it is you say. In Revelation, it talks about those who have a virgin heart, a pure heart, and who just follow Jesus, the Lamb. So just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, what does he say? Continue to live your lives in him. This is often where we depart. He's saying continue in the first things. And over the last two years, that's what we've been focused on, the first things, to restore our first love, to continue where we started. I was telling a couple in pre-marriage counseling recently that a lot of times we, we, we dog like that first love within a relationship or that infatuation, as we call it. And in some ways it is. But we need that. 
It's not supposed to be an end in itself. That first love is not supposed to be an end in itself, but rather it's supposed to be a doorway to something deeper. It's meant to be built on. And so it morphs into just this, from this, just this feeling to something deep and firm, strengthened in the Lord. And you, so think about it. I think about when I was pursuing my wife, Kayla. I would tell her, man, all, all that she meant to me. When we were dating, I wrote a song for her. She thought, oh, he writes probably, he probably writes songs for all the girls that he dates. Not knowing, and she just learned this recently. I said, you are the only girl I've ever written a song for in my whole life. She's like, oh, wow, that's, that's a lot more special now. I had the same song. I just changed the name. <laughs> but it was like this overflow of my heart. Like, I just had to tell her all the time. And she would tell me. She used to write me these top ten things, of, things that I, I like about you. We didn't say the word love yet, you know. But all these, this is what I like about you. This is what I, how awesome you are. And she had this list. I still have them. We wanted to spend time together. When I get off the phone with her, I'd be like, when's the next time I get to call her? My mind was always on her. And often what happens is when you get married, you stop doing those first things. Don't you? And then you lose that first love. Love is more than just a feeling. We know that. Love is covenant. But we can't just disregard those first things. It's not an end in itself. But the Lord means for it to go deeper. And so what happens in marriage, I talk to couples all the time, what happens is we stop doing those first things. And so it is in our relationship with the Lord. We stop doing those first things. We stop coming before him with humility of heart. And dependence completely on him and saying, God, I don't know anything outside of you. We come with that, 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 that worship. And worship is just means that which has your attention. We stop telling him how much he means to us, how much we love. And maybe we just recite things that we've recited for many years. And, but the, the, the heart has changed. The heart is left. We acknowledge him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him, as Isaiah says. We stop spending time with him. He starts being further from our minds. We stop talking about him. And he becomes an obligation. And we think our relationship with the Lord has just got to, it's just work. It's an obligatory thing. Well, I better go to church or I better do this because I know it's good for my kids. I know it's something I need to do. Or it's a little pick me up throughout the week. Instead of it is, Jesus is the center of my life. I remember when I gave my life to the Lord, and, and uh, many of you know my testimony, but I was addicted and an and alcoholic and depressed. And I, when I found Jesus, it was like, man, what have I been doing with my life? What have I been doing with my life? My life is completely empty without him. Jesus, just thank you that I could come sit at your table. And I used to spend hours just worshiping the Lord. Just so thankful. No one else was around. No one was patting me on the back saying, way to go, Tony. Look at how holy you are. I just wanted to be with him. And that is not an end in itself. That is just the beginning of something deeper. And that's what he talks about here. Continue to live your lives in him. So what? Rooted so that you might be rooted. If you want to build something up you need deep roots first you've got to build the root you've got to have the root system before it can can go up 
And so what is our role? Well, Mark 4 talks about soil. It says a seed goes into the ground. A seed is planted. And depending on how the condition of the soil is will depend on how fruitful and how deep the roots go. But that which a rich soil, a soft soil, a soil that's tilled up, that's ready to receive the seed, then that seed can go down deep, deep into the ground. And it's like Jeremiah 17 says, you'll be like a tree planted by the stream that will not grow weary when the drought comes, won't worry when the heat comes, but will never cease bearing fruit in every single season. Nothing bears fruit in every single season. He's talking about living your life in a place of impossibility, but it starts in a place of rootedness. There was a season of my life where I had built the things of God, and what I thought, were, and they're all good things, but I had no foundation. So it doesn't matter how nice of a house you build, if you build it on sand, the storm is gonna come and wash it away. So the Lord is concerned with the foundation, with the first things, with being rooted, depth before breadth. I wanna be a deep, a deep Christian, not a shallow Christian. So he shows us the, the progression. You're rooted and then you're built up in him. He changes the analogy in classic Paul fashion. He kind of goes between a bunch of analogies, but now you have this foundation that's rooted in Jesus. And like 1 Corinthians 3 says that, now you have this foundation of Christ as a chief cornerstone. So now we can begin to build something. But still, we don't take it into our own hands and start building our own thing. But instead, we allow the Lord to build the house. His word says that it's, Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain, right? So we say, Jesus, come use, come use precious material to build this house, not wood, hay, and stubble that will burn up in the fire, but precious gems, gold, and silver to build this house so that it might last and, and be tested by the fire and not be burned up. And so then the Lord starts to build something beautiful in us. The common thread throughout this is continual submittedness and dependence on the Lord. That is, that is a, 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 a chief marker of the first things, dependence on the Lord. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He doesn't mean that you, can, you, you just sit on your hands. It means that you'll do nothing of eternal significance. And then the next thing is strengthened in faith as you were taught. Other versions say established. You'll be strong. He's built something lasting that will stand the test of time. When the storms of life come, they might be hard and they, and they will. We're not exempt from the storms of life. But we will be established in the Lord. Established in the Lord. <clears throat> in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Thankfulness is a fruit of a life that's dependent on the Lord. We have a lot to be thankful for. The first step to waywardness and walking away from the Lord is forgetfulness. I'll say that again. The first step to waywardness and walking away from the Lord 
is forgetfulness. We have so much to be thankful for as believers. Even if your whole world is crashing, you're thankful Jesus saved you. Thank you. You're thankful for the blood of Jesus that changed and transformed your heart. The power of his spirit. We're thankful for his word, which is living and active. We're thankful for his Holy Spirit that dwells among us, and he's not left us as orphans, but sent his spirit. On and on and on it goes. If you want to break complaining and negative thinking in your life, that pattern, begin to dis- dis- discipline yourself, disciple yourself in the art of thankfulness. What are you thankful for today? There's questions that I ask myself throughout the week. One you've heard me say, do I want to be like Jesus? And that's a hard question because that will help to guide your life (laughs) when someone flicks you off in traffic or do I want to be like Jesus? When things are not going well, do I want to be like Jesus? Another question is, what am I thankful for? What am I thankful for? And that's like this cascading thing. And once you start, man, the Lord just blesses you and he keeps bringing things to your mind, all these things that, are, are, that you're thankful for. That's what the, Lord prayer, the Lord's prayer really starts us out in, in thankfulness. A heart of gratitude. If you want to stay in a complaining, negative state, stay in a place of ingratitude. But he desires that you be rooted and built up, strengthened in him, and overflowing with thankfulness. In verse 8, And see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. So the natural fruit of a life rooted in him, as you'll understand, One, he's sufficient to keep you. He's also sufficient to teach you. We don't need to look to the things of this world to be taught, but Jesus is a perfect teacher. He will lead us and guide us. See to it that no one takes you captive. In the Greek, that word actually means to like be kidnapped, which seems like, well, if someone's taken captive or a victim, they're... Or, or kidnapped, they're the victim. Well, I mean, it's kind of out of their power. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't put yourself in a vulnerable position. Be girded up in the Lord, strengthened and established in the Lord. So when the enemy comes with his fiery darts or he tries to take you captive, it won't be possible. You're so deeply rooted in the Lord that the devil could throw everything that he has at you and it's just pointless because you're so firmly established in the things of the Lord. So then these hollow and deceptive philosophies of the world, which we still have today. In, in Paul's day, it was Gnosticism, it was angel worship, it was Jewish legalism and tradition, it was Greek wisdom and philosophy. All these other things that depended on just the ways of this wor- world, the way that God set up creation to be, that depended on him to even make sense on their own. Anything other than on Jesus. 
but he says, I am all that you need. So Jesus is sufficient to keep you. He's sufficient to teach you. In verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. This is good news. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. He was not just a prophet, a good teacher, a good man, a loving person, but he was God. In just the the previous chapter, in verse 15, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or things on heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. In John 1, it says that, No one has seen the Father except for the Son, for the Son himself is God. Hebrews 1 says that he is the exact radiance. He is the exact imprint of the Father, the radiance of his glory. Jesus, we look to Jesus to see what the Father is like. He is is the image of the invisible God. So we have to look no further than Jesus to see what the Father is like. And because Jesus is the fullness of God, he has brought us into that fullness. We can experience the fullness of who God is. We can experience his presence, his power, his faithfulness because of Jesus. We don't become the fullness in the same way that Jesus is, but we can step into the fullness of who he is, into that stream. Because of Jesus, that is good news. And he is the head over every power and authority. That also is good news. He is the head over every power and authority. And just because he has authority doesn't mean that he asserts that authority at all times, but he is the head. If you ever want to get off as a church, we cut off the head. That's why I said earlier, and we'll continue to say, Jesus is the head of this church. Jesus is the great shepherd, the leader of this church. And he has power and authority. In verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, your whole self ruled by your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Jesus is sufficient to transform you. Circumcision in the Old Testament was an act of obedience, but it wasn't a it wasn't a ritual of salvation. It was an outward manifestation of an inward reality. 
It wasn't something that they would do to save people, but it was something that, that was set apart, that to set this nation apart from other nations. So he's talking about the circumcision of the heart by Jesus. He's saying now you've been set apart. You've been taken out from the ways and the things of this world, and now you've been set apart for Jesus. Your life is not your own. Just because I wear this wedding ring doesn't make me married. It's not the ring that makes me married, but this is an outward sign that my heart is for Kayla and Kayla alone. If I take this off, I used to joke that if I, someone else wore my wedding ring, wedding ring, that they would be married to my wife. She hated it when I would joke like that. But if I take this off, I'm still married, aren't I? I'm still married. This is an outward sign of an inward reality of my love and devotion to my wife. And so when we come to the Lord, he does something in our hearts to transform, to change us, and to set us apart. It says that he makes us holy. The blood of Jesus covers us, and now we are free from blemish. And he blots out our sin. We are made holy. In the next chapter over in Colossians 3, it says we put off our old self when we put on our new self. Renewed in Jesus. Jesus has the power to transform you. In verse 12, it says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Again, he likens water baptism to circumcision. It's not ritual or tradition that saves us, but it's obedience to the Lord, and it's an outward manifestation of an inward reality that this life is not my own. The water represents the the grave, right? And we're immersed in that water. It's a spiritual death. We're going down into that grave, representing the old life is gone. And we're raised out of that life with Jesus into new life. It represents the old is gone and the new has come. But it's not baptism that saves us. He says it here. It's by faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus hasn't been watered down. He hasn't lost his power or potency. He is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. He is the same. In the fullness of God, dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. And so the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the spirit that lives in you and I. That's a big deal. That will inform our prayer life. If we believe, really, if we really, really believe that the same power and authority that Jesus walked in when he was on this earth is still here today in the, in the person of the Holy Spirit, that will inform how we pray. We won't pray, God, if it's your will to heal, God, if you, if you feel like it today, would you give me your, more of yourself? But instead, we pray bold prayers of faith that honor him. You know, when you pray big, big prayers to God, it, he, he loves it. Even if it sounds outlandish and crazy, the Lord sees it as an act of faith. He sees it as, a, as, as something that, um, that shows him the reality of our heart to believe him for the impossible things. 
Amen. You guys okay? Great. So Jesus is sufficient to keep you. He's sufficient to teach you. He's sufficient to transform you. He's also sufficient to save you. In verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to a cross. And having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Scott, would you come? When you were dead. This echoes in Ephesians 2 when he says something similar. But when you were dead, before we knew him, our spirit man was dead. We were dead in our trespasses. The wages of sin was and is death. We are on a trajectory towards a life without him. Death speaks of separation. One reason we we fear death so much is because of the separation that occurs between us and our loved ones. Death represents separation, which is really defines sin, separation from the Lord. But when you were dead in your trespasses of your sin, Jesus made you alive. It was Jesus. It was not works of ourselves. There's nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves. But we turn to this one who pulls us out from the pit. He forgave all of our sins and has canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. You know, the devil, is he's called the, the, the accuser of the brethren. But it's our own sin that condemns us. It's not the devil. He just stands and accuses and tries to remind the Lord of all the ways in which you fall short. But honestly, we don't even need him to do that. Our own sin condemns us. We stand before the Lord. Without him, we are condemned. But Jesus made us alive. Jesus took our place. He canceled the debt and he nailed it to a cross. Jesus conquered and destroyed the works of the devil in the most unlikely of ways on a cross. Through the cross, he didn't come on a war horse declaring battle with the armies of heaven behind him, but he came in riding on a donkey (laughs) and nailed to a cross a criminal's death. The cross was a symbol of shame and humiliation as well as the revealing of God's wisdom and glory through it. To Rome, the cross was used not only as an instrument of torture, and execution, but as a shameful spectacle reserved only for the worst and the lowest. To the Jews, the, the cross was a sign of being accursed and in opposition to God. And this was the death Jesus died, and the death for which the crowd was begging Pilate for. Jesus endured the cross and despising its shame. 
The lowest rung in the ladder of our Lord's humiliation was that he endured even death on a cross, as Philippians 2.8 says. He descended to the lowest place, marred by shame, humiliation, and sin. And so it's only right that we now be, that he now be lavishly worshipped and be offered the highest of praise because he not only descended to the lowest place, but he ascended to the highest place. He stands in victory at the right hand of the Father, and he's still proclaiming good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. Sin was nailed to that cross and was dealt with once and for all. He took stripes on his back for our healing. He wore a crown of thorns upon his head so that we could be co-heirs in a kingdom that never ends. He was betrayed and abandoned so we could sit at his table and be sons and daughters in the family of God. He was humiliated so we could know the fullness of joy. He was beaten beyond recognition so we could be recognized by the Father. He came to destroy the works of the devil and he overcame every weapon Satan threw at him. He publicly displayed his power and authority over death and the grave that made a spectacle of the devil. He is unmatched. He is undefeated. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.